there is a view and I subscribe to it. And whether it's cultural or whether it's real or whether it's just force of habit over many years, we're multitaskers and men really aren't. Not only because we don't expect them to be and it's time we expected them to be. The price of being expected to multitask is too high. One chapter, for example, hags, crones, witches and mothers-in-law. Being a mother-in-law, I can... (laughs) Yeah, I'm all of those. (laughs) One of the fundamental things we have to do is stop thinking about that awful phrase, work-life balance because that seems to indicate that work is somehow separate from life. But who criticises you for criticising the women? Senior executives at the AFL, give her a break for God's sake. I mean, you of all people, why are you criticising her? Can I make a recommendation for something? go ahead. Succession. It's absolutely... Loosely based on the Murdoch family. Very loosely, but it's just fascinating in its own right. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 73 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin and I'm here again with my friend and fellow Poddy, the award-winning journalist and 2019 Oscar movie specialist, it seems, because she's just spending all her time at the movies, Caroline Wilson. I've finally seen a shocker. By law of averages, I had to see a bad one and I'll tell you about it later. Hello, Corrie. Hello. And with us today, Caro, this is going to be very confusing for me. We, have, we are joined with us by a special guest, Jane Caro. So I have Caro and Caro. <laughs> Jane Caro, writer, advertising industry guru, social commentator and winner of the Women in Leadership Prize at the 2018 Walkley Awards. Welcome, Jane. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you. And we're very excited to be talking today about your new book, Accidental Feminists, which talks to people like Caro and I, because we are the cohort that you talk about in this book group. I was a bit distressed at the end of the book to read that we're going to be impoverished and poor when we're, when we're 80. <laughs> Get more on that later. Yes. No, well, Jane, Jane's revved me up to not be impoverished and poor exactly. when I'm yes. 80. I've, I've got lots of plans after reading this book. Um, message from my younger daughter, Clementine, you are by far the best panellist on Gruen Transfer and she just thinks you're fabulous. Sadly, they haven't used me for over five years. Well, she always felt that you were the best. She made <laughs> me start you. watching that show. I'm, I'm the one who said, what a ridiculous idea, a show about advertising. It will never work. I said but that anyway. too. <laughs> it was brilliant. And yeah. I wish you were back there on that panel. So do I. Maybe hey, you can have your own. Me. Have, you, have your own show, Jane. Oh, that'd be nice. And Clementine's too. twenty-two, so obviously she was very much a teenager when you became her favourite panelist. She's very anyway. sophisticated. The anyway. old clam. Now, Caro, housekeeping and apologies. I gather you have a few apologies up your sleeve. Look, just a couple. Um, the zucchini picture we posted on uh, show notes last week from Otto Lingi, and rest assured, everyone, this week I've managed to find a recipe not out of Otto Lingi's simple, but it is very simple. It was the wrong picture. Um, I'm very sorry. It's the squash zucchini one that Corey put on the Instagram post. Yes, yeah, so look at Don't Shoot Pod on your Instagram and you'll see the actual photo. Courtesy of Yotam Otolenghi, I should have said that I'd nicked it from in case I get sued for copyright or something. But yes. And one, one of our listeners did say in the Instagram, is that Caro's dish or is that out of yeah. the book? I don't, to confess. don't cut it in finger pencil shape. Cut them in flat round shapes and then squish them at the end. Uh, our friend Jeff Slattery's got on board about the pesto argument. Of course it has to be basil. And he refers us to the S-A-V-E-U-R Saver website, the, uh, past, the pesto Genovese recipe, Genovese, that we all have to copy. But Joe, our other podcast friend, says 
absolute bunkum. She's been making spicy pesto with Thai basil and coriander and chilli, and it's an absolute winner. Well, you did ask last week whether we could do it with Thai basil. Mm. So uh, there you go. There's another recipe. Joanna Weir on the Don't Shoot Pod Instagram account. Uh, which now has 862 followers, Carol, after I lost the 1,000 when I lost the account. We're getting back. We're Jane clawing is, our way back. I, for, I forgot the password and I lost them all. <laughs> oh, no. So we had to rebuild our audience. We're almost there. Joanna Weir says, I love Mary Stewart, Carol. You've reminded me of past reading pleasures. I've reread Moon Spinners and then I found Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle. So happy. Thank you. Oh, sorry. So happy, full stop. Thank you. Well, Joanna, I refer you to the one I've just finished again that I hadn't read, which is called My Brother Michael. Um, as much a beautiful travel story of Greece, starting in Athens and ending in Delphi with a bit of, you know, murder mystery along the way. Absolutely fabulous. Well, Carol, you know how you mentioned this secondhand bookstore in Queenscliff where you found your For new Mary Stewart's? Yes. Uh, Nat Mark Oscar, who's one of our followers as well on Insta, said, Hi, Carol, is that the secondhand bookshop that was once a church? No, it's right. across the road from the church. Okay. And we tried to get a selfie with Pete, but he was a bit shy, so we can't put him <laughs> on our show notes. Um, just a, a apology by way of good local tip. When you're taking your stepmother to the um, MTC to see a play, as I did last night, lady in the van, check the date on the tickets. No. Luckily, it was a week early, not a week late. So oh, we went and no. had a very nice dinner instead. I was wanting you to talk about that today. And well, I will be next week. Oh, my when goodness. she apologised, when, when she texted me and said, are you sure it's not next week? And I sent back a very officious, of course, I told you it was this week. I did have to swallow humble pie. As as the woman at the ticket counter is searching through for the old Miriam Margoyles win. That <laughs> was so embarrassing. Anyway, we had a lovely night. Any other apologies? Well, how are you going with your goal of the month? Oh, okay. So my goal of the month, interesting you should ask that because I thought, so Jane, just so you, I know you, of course, avidly listen to our podcast every week <laughs> <laughs> when you're not on tour and doing all the other things you do. Uh, we said, uh, we decided this year, instead of doing a New Year's resolution, we would have each month, we would have a goal and particularly to do something that we'd never done before. So Caro's was to spend the whole month of February without spending one cent on a piece of clothing. Oh. And mine was to walk every day or at least to notch up. I've joined this thing called 100 Miles, which is 1,600 kilometres for the year. And so I have to do roughly 30K a week. And so we've been keeping each other in check. Carol, I have to say that I've fallen behind. On the day of this podcast, I have two days to go. I've got to actually – that's why I'm in my walking gear, Jane. That's Sorry to not dress me, up. That's why you asked me to walk the town after the podcast. <laughs> Sorry not to dress up for you, but I've got about 12K to do when I leave here. I'm getting there, Carol. But what about you well, and your the, shopping? The clagger is that I've done the walking. And I think you've been pretty good about buying clothing. I don't think you've bought anything, have you? No, I no. I, after buying three potential dresses for my son's wedding, <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I'm in the quiet okay, house I, now. I was going to lie, but I can't lie. I, fess, I bought a raincoat this week. Oh, you weren't allowed to buy anything. I know, I know, but it was on sale and it was the only one left in my size and I was with my daughter, Rose, which is part of the reason I'm confessing. Don't, bl- don't blame Rose. <laughs> no, but she was witness to my... She said, Mum, it'll still be available next month. It might not have been. So I bought a raincoat. I've broken it, but I won't do it again, and oh, I'm very sorry. Oh, yeah, I've, I have just lost faith in you now. Um, Jane, it is lovely to have you. As I said, this new book, Accidental Feminist, published by Melbourne University Publishing, gosh, one of the last books to come out and hit the shelves before we heard the news that they were no longer doing this sort of publishing. I know, which is 
you know, devastating, stupid, um, elitist, um, annoying and, uh, you know, really awful for the people who work at MUP and who have been, I have to say, absolutely fantastic to work with. Well, And, they and hopefully still... not politically motivated, Corrie. Well, well, we, hope so. well, we would hope so, although I keep hearing uh, more about that. We might talk about that a little bit later mm. in the show. But, Jane, I love this book because... It comes at a time uh, in the lives of our generation, the three of us around the table, and I would call us actually Jermaine's daughters. So Jermaine Greer, you know, is probably 15, 20 years older than us. And we came along and we were beneficiaries in so many ways, not just in the workforce, but um, in many areas of our lives. And so your book focuses on us because we became the accidental feminists. We didn't expect to be. We thought we could have it all. We were told we could have it all. And in many ways we have. Um, you've divided the chapters into most interesting um, titles, which gives people an, a, a sort of an idea of the stereotypes that you're challenging. One chapter, for example, hags, crones, witches and mothers-in-law. Being a mother-in-law, I can, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm all of those. <laughs> but you maintain that the women who were born at the tail end of the baby boomer generation and into that early 1960, 61, 62. So women, in other words, who are now in their 50s and 60s, and you say they've changed everything but they didn't grow up to be revolutionary and that we are the first generation of women in the history of the world who have mostly earned their own money for most of their lives. Um, so most interesting, what set you on the course of this book? Well, the first thing was um, thinking about that, that, that. I mean, obviously, working class women, women who... Um, you know, for all sorts of reasons we're doing it tough, have worked for wages throughout history. But we were the first whole cohort of women where you weren't pitied if you had to go to work. It was actually seen as an aspiration that you would go out there and get yourself a job and, you know, contribute to the public sphere as well as the private one. That was the huge revolutionary change. And it has changed the world, basically. So I was kind of thinking about that and thinking, you know, isn't this terrific, aren't we clever? And then I heard that shocking statistic, which probably both of you have heard as well, that um, women over 55 are the fastest growing group amongst the homeless. And it really, can, I thought to myself, how do those two things possibly fit together? That you've got this, you know, huge change where we're earning wages, you know, pay packets with our names on them, for goodness sake, for most of our lives. And yet... Poverty in old age is such a, a high risk for my generation of women. And um, I wrote an article about it for ABC Online called Women Over 50, A Tale of Two Fates. And um, I got a phone call after it appeared, and it was from Louise Adler from MUP. And she said, I've read your article. It's a book. I want you to write it. And here I am, having written the book. Um, and it, it's been terrific because you know, obviously, if you write a book, you have to go on the journey of answering your own question. How could this have happened? And do you, do you, in your own mind, offer some solutions? I mean, I know you do, but what do you tell us about the solutions? Well, I think there are lots of solutions, but I think in a way you have to know why it happened before you can understand the logic of the solutions. Yep. So, I mean, in the end, I think we have to, uh, we, it, it's clear to see that it is this ingrained belief that certainly my generation were brought up with, and I think. I think currently girls are still brought up with this idea that it's women's caring responsibilities that are their first duty, that their first duty is really to be selfless, to put other people first, you know, all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, we did that. We, yes, we went into the workforce, but then we took time out to have children. Well, what happens when you take time out to have children and look after them? You're not getting paid. You're not getting super. You're not, you know, you're not amassing 
are savings for later on. Then you go back into the workforce, but you go back part-time. You go back low-paid. You go back often in, in relatively insecure occupations. Our generation traded, and we didn't know we were doing this, but I think this is what we did. We traded flexibility for security in our old age because flexibility suited us when we were um, taking on the lion's share of the parenting as well as carrying a paid work um, responsibility. And then we, you know, continue to work part-time. Sometimes our marriages collapsed and often women were the ones who did the leaving in um, relationships because for the first time earning your own money, even if it's not a lot of money, gives you agency. You can decide if you're in a lousy relationship, I want to get out of this relationship. But because your first duty is to care and to be selfless, a lot of women did things like saying, well, you know, I won't push on the finances because I'm taking the children and, you know, he doesn't want me to leave and I feel guilty. So, you know, they sort of did themselves down a bit. Often they got the house and the kids and that was about it. And then just when we got to the point in our late 40s, early 50s where the kids are more grown, they don't need us to be home after school, et cetera, et cetera, we've got energy, we've got experience, we've got education, we've outperformed men and boys in education for over 100 years, um, you know, we've got everything to offer, we're deemed too old because the average age of retirement, in inverted commas, I don't think a lot of it's voluntary, um, in Australia for women is 52. So what happens then? There's research in the book that shows that women over 50, older women, are the least likely to get a call back if if they go for a job. So it's extremely hard to get employed once you're that age. And if you're from low-skilled, you know, a kind of peripatetic record of employment because of caring responsibilities, you're stuffed. And that's basically what's happened. So there are a lot of solutions. Some of them we could do now. You know, every new development should have affordable housing in it. We need to help those men and women who find themselves facing homelessness in old age now. That's urgent. We can't leave them living out of their cars or, you know, on the street corners. Um, and there's lots of suggestions in the book as to how we could do that. Many of them from um, Susan Ryan, who was the uh, just past yep. age discrimination commissioner. But I think one of the fundamental things we have to do is stop thinking about that awful phrase, work-life balance, because that seems to indicate that work is somehow separate from life, as if they're two different things. And of course, they're not. Work is just one part of life. And work isn't just paid work. There's all sorts of work that adults need to do, childcare, domestic work, and paid work. And you know what? We should share them equally with everyone who's an adult, not say women do three jobs and men do one. No, 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 no. And then you add into that um, for people of our age, in many cases, looking after ageing parents. Correct. That's the other thing that happens. And the men often, I mean, there are, as you say in your book, there are wonderful examples of wonderful men. So I don't mean to generalise. But the stats are low. Yeah. And it it, it tends to be the women who take on board all of that stuff, whether it's just doing the shopping for your mum who's living at home or whether it's actually looking after parents who have dementia who are in a home and you have to go there every day or every week. And it can be parents-in-law as well. It's not just your own parents. Often it's women who take the responsibility for their husband's parents. So yes, we get squeezed at either end. And that means again, coming out of the workforce or reducing hours, therefore reducing the amount of income you're making. And unfortunately, because of the way we set up the superannuation system, that has a direct impact on the amount of money you've got for your own old age. But there has been a shift there legally, sorry, legally hasn't there, because 
well, I, I know a lot of women who are, when they're doing their divorce settlements, are, <coughs> are taking future superannuation from their husband. Oh, yes. That's, which has been a, a good thing for women. A very good thing. Came in, though, in 2002 yep. and for de facto 2009. So there'd be still an awful lot of women of our age group who may have divorced and separated before then who didn't um, get that any access to their husbands. There's husband. also the message cultural shift. I mean, I've always worked. I love I love my job. Um, I'm doing a little bit less now, but I'm still very, very busy. And yet uh, th- there is a view and I subscribe to it. And whether it's cultural or whether it's real or whether it's just force of habit over many years, we're multitaskers and men really aren't. Only because we don't expect them to be, and it's time we expected them to be. Because unfortunately, that multitasking thing for women is one of the reasons why we end up with, on average, uh, retiring with half the super of men and fully one third of us with no super at all. The, the price of being expected to multitask is too high. Jane, in the book, you mentioned something that really resonated with me. There are lots of points in your book where I became quite angry on my own behalf, looking yes. back on my life. It made me angry researching it. So this is a this is a, an anecdote that both of you will completely, completely be on board with. So in, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago uh, when my kids were small and I'd just become a single mother and I was an executive at the age and the juggle, as you can imagine, was immense. And to be working on the news desk and to get home at a reasonable time and all of that sort of brouhaha. One of my colleagues who was also a managing editor, so same level of me, he was a single father of two, but his children lived with his wife interstate. But when they would come to visit, the whole thing was, oh, he has to go home early because he's got the kids. Oh, isn't that lovely? You know, And even <laughs> women in the office would say, oh, he's such a good dad. And, but no one ever said... Are you okay? Look, why don't you leave half an hour early because you've got to get the kids from creche or wherever you have to get them. There was never any empathy toward me, whereas to the man who was doing the parenting, it was, oh, gosh, isn't he lovely? Do you think that's changed or do you think that still exists? still exists. I am... I mean, I experienced it myself. My husband wanted to do more with the children than he was able to because of the kind of job that he had, and he got very stressed about because I got fired when I was four months pregnant, so we lost my income. So he got very stressed about keeping his job because it was the only income, and this is, I think, quite a common story. Were you fired because you were pregnant? I was fired because we lost a major account, but um, as I was pregnant, I remember saying to my boss when he said to me, we're going to have to let you go, I said, you've just fired the only person who can't get another job because you can't, you know, you've got a great big pregnant belly in front of you. It does you down when you go for another job. (laughs) Um, And... um, so I, you know, I remember being infuriated all the way through our children's lives, our daughters, two daughters, that if my husband did anything, if he changed a nappy, if he turned up to a school concert in, um, you know, working hours, people would say to me, oh, my God, he's so amazing. What an incredible father. And he would get praised literally for doing anything. And I, who was, you know, at home most of the time, then part time, then always at the school concerts during working hours, um, I never got praise for doing any of those things. In fact, I only ever got criticism if I failed to do something. And I think um, that is still the truth of it. And this is this idea that for women, nurturing and caring is our duty. Therefore, you don't get praise for doing your duty. But with men, we see it as, oh, they're going above and beyond. I draw a parallel in the book, actually, with how we regard public and private schools. So if private schools, for example, take on a a handful of very disadvantaged kids through a scholarship, we all go, they're amazing, you know, wow, (laughs) their generosity knows no bounds. They get extra funding, by the way. Um, But 
public schools who may have, uh, you know, the majority cohort, very disadvantaged kids, we look down our nose at them and if something goes wrong, we criticise them, we never praise them. And I think that gives us an indication of, A, the expectations we have of um, the different systems and of the different roles of mother and father, but it also tells us something about status and hierarchy and how we demand less of those who have high status and more of those who have low status. And I think we have to accept that women and mothers still have lower status than men and fathers. But to be the, to be the devil's advocate, and <clears throat> excuse me, I've worked at the age for the, over 20 years now, and as you know, Corrie, things have changed. I mean, there are so many men who have equal parenting rights and would it be fair to say that there is also a section, big section of society who slightly looks down on those men as well as praising oh, yes. them? Oh, no, the peer, the peer pressure. When my husband, um, you know, wanted to have time out and wanted to spend more, he was mocked and uh, ridiculed yep. by men he worked with. And indeed, when one of my um, son-in-laws wanted to take five days off after their first child was born, his boss said to him, what do you need to do that for? So there is still yep. this idea that haven't you got a shit the baby's got a mother what is what do you need this weird idea that fathers just donate their sperm and their pay and that's the end of the job <laughs> And you're looking for a more equal society. Jane, One another point just to skip on. There are so many things that we could talk about in this book, but another thing I wanted to talk about is the role of the woman when she becomes the boss and how she's perceived by her colleagues in society. And you use the example, and I think it's a really good one, of Julia Gillard, who when she was Deputy PM and also Minister for Education and two or three other portfolios from memory, everybody said, you know, she's capable, she's a good organiser, she runs a great meeting, she's loyal to Kevin Terrific Rudd. negotiator. Terrific negotiator, all of these things. The very second that she becomes Prime Minister, through means which party colleagues have and other politicians have been doing for years. Gee, we've just watched it happen about three times in front of our faces, haven't we? <laughs> she, but she's, she's, you know, how dare you stab the leader in the back? You're a witch. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we have this ridiculous... I, I wrote an article, um, it's not referenced in the book, but I wrote a, an article for the Saturday paper after the whole Hillary Clinton thing because I, I was really upset by that chant, you know, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. And so I did some investigation into how we regard female leaders. And across the Western, across the whole world, actually, over the last 50 years, only 10% of world leaders have been female. So 90% male, 10% female. And of those 10% who've been female, fully 25%, one quarter, have been accused of corruption, uh, impeached for corruption, uh, defeated under the stench of corruption, or actually jailed for corruption. Now, do we think that it's likely that 25% of the tiny number of women who have reached high office are really, really more corrupt? Are we more corrupt than and, the blokes? Yeah, I was going to say, does this suggest that the men are not? <laughs> exactly. Or does it suggest that as soon as a woman seeks power for herself, as soon as she is seen as ambitious, she is seen as a bitch and also there's something illegitimate about her. That is so kind of anti the way we think women should be. You think about it as we're supposed to put other people's needs first. They love us as a two IC. They hate us as the IC. But successful women have to be very tough. The word tough is used all the time. But they don't. They, even when they're not very tough, it doesn't matter what they are, they're seen as somehow not right. When Hillary Clinton was standing, I remember if anyone did 
dared to put out a positive message about her, particularly on Twitter, they would always start it with these words, I know she's not perfect, but... And I remember thinking there's never been a perfect candidate for the American presidency and there never will be. And if we expect the women who are standing for that office to be perfect, then no women, woman will ever be the president because that is an unrealistic standard. So how do we cope as women commentators when... Because I personally was disappointed in many aspects of Julia's prime ministership. But she's a human being. I, I know that. I know that. But to me, she, we never saw the real Julia. She was immediately, I mean, I know the faceless I think we might be seeing rather too much of the real Scott Morrison. Well, yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. He's got bigger issues. But I wish that she had been prepared to be a bit braver and a bit more show herself because I heard her make speeches and she was a wonderful speech maker. But she never, she was too, she was captured by the machine really, wasn't she? She never really did a lot of the things I think she would have loved to have done. Do you know what I think about Julia Gillard? I think she was a perfectly good Prime Minister. Mm. I think she was probably better than the average Australian Prime Minister has been, not as good as the great ones and not as bad as the terrible ones. And that's perfectly fine. I think we have to drop, and I think it is a sexist burden that women carry, that somehow before we deserve to get high mm. office, we have to be better than, we have to be special, we have to somehow come along and be terrific in every area. We're going to be just as ordinary, flawed, um, and, yep. and disastrous as a lot of the blokes. My mother always used to say, I love this, she used to say, we will only have true equality when there are as many mediocre women in positions of power as there are mediocre men. Julia Gillard was better than mediocre. But, yeah, she had lots of things she did really badly. It's also terribly hard to be the first of anything because people are giving you all this advice and a lot of it's contradictory. You mustn't alienate them. You mustn't say this. You mustn't do that. You mustn't be too shrill. You mustn't be too strike. You know, oh, you can just imagine. I Look, I disagreed with Julia Gillard on education absolutely fundamentally. I thought she was a very poor education minister. I thought she was a much better prime minister. But she was very unfairly judged. It didn't matter what she did. She was criticised for it. I think in, in my sphere that I work in, which is AFL, um, they've repeatedly made some really bad female appointments. They've also made some very good ones. Mm. But there have been a couple in recent years which have been poor. And it's difficult to criticise them. You do get <clears throat> you do get lent on a bit. And yeah. So, uh, look, what do you mean by the sisterhood? <clears throat> there isn't a sisterhood. No, no, well, no, well, no, more, more by the but men who, who say. Cri- but who criticises you for criticising the women? Senior executives at the AFL, give her a break for God's sake. I mean, you of all people, why are you criticising you? I yeah, mean, which is unfair because everybody it should be a yeah. level playing field and yeah. everybody should be judged on their performance. Yes, yeah. The the, the woman Trisha Squires, who's been put in at the head of the Tasmanian AFL. I mean, I, I think there's been some really disappointing aspects of her appointment. Ditto Dorothy Hisgrove, an executive who is now gone, and I. I, I I think that is a problem as well. So we I mean, should be allowed to say that. Well, that's true, but Jane makes a good point. I think um, when when you make women appointments in these men's worlds and positions of power, it's the men always say, "Oh, you have to get this one right because if she fails, it's going to be a disaster." We tried a woman once; they were awful. We're never doing it again. Oh my God! How many bad <clears throat> men have run all sorts of things, including countries and world wars? But nobody ever says, "Well, we've tried men; they were useless. We're not it, having them again." <laughs> It's very interesting to see what's happening with the Democrat nominations in the US for pre- for a president, all the women putting up their hands, and mm. quite different women from Kamala Harris through to Elizabeth Warren. Mm. And they are really the Democrat uh, 
branch, like r- grassroots, I don't know about the hierarchy, but the grassroots are certainly really trying not to focus on, they're trying so hard not to focus on this gender issue, which is something they tried to do a bit with Hillary. Like, first woman president, you know, come on, everybody, get on board with this. It's impossible to ignore it. Unfortunately, it's the same as Obama was the first black president. You know, the fact is there's been 45 men in suits. One of them was a bit different because he was black. That was great. But it, whoever... Whatever woman is the first, she will be the first. And it's, we, can, we can't pretend that isn't so and we can't pretend that there isn't a difference with that because it's not that women have to be better than men or nicer or more deserving or any of that sort of thing. It's simply that we live different lives from men. We have different life experiences and we need women at all of the decision-making tables because one of the reasons that so many older women are ending up, you know, facing living out of their car is because there was no women at the table when the superannuation system was designed. There were no women all the way through saying, hang on guys, that isn't going to work for us and here are the reasons why. And no women are bought, bought, on a lot of boards who are saying that particular candidate who was the 55-year-old woman for this CEO's job, I really believe in. I, I, I think we should need to listen to her message. I think she could take on this job. And also, we know that if you've only got the one woman on the board or the one woman in the situation, it's really impossible for them to make a difference. You have to have um, a number. You have to have three or... You need you three. Know, yeah, you need three. What do three. they say? One is token, two is a conspiracy... Yeah. Three is when you start to normalisation. Yeah. yeah, but even when you only have one, I mean, my favourite example of the difference that having a woman at the, uh, you know, in the in the room where the decisions are made with power makes is Queen Victoria. Because when uh, chloroform and ether were invented, doctors said, "Oh, this is a boon for birthing women because you know um, we can save lives if they don't get exhausted with the pain and the ex- and all of this stuff and the adrenaline kicking in, stopping labour, um, and the the church said, oh, no, 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 no. It is ordained by God that women must suffer in the pangs of childbirth to pay back the sin of Eve tempting Adam with the apple. I mean, for goodness <laughs> sake, people, um, that we can believe this shit is really revealing. Um, and Thankfully, for- we've moved on now, yeah, Jane. <laughs> but fortunately, oh, some people haven't, some people haven't. Um, fortunately, the head of the... Um, Church of England at that time was a birthing mother of nine. Eventually, she was about to have a seventh child, Queen Victoria, and she basically said, sod off, grab the ether and the chloroform and made it acceptable for pain relief in childbirth. Now, that is why we need women at all decision-making tables, because they know what women's lives are like. When I see these pictures, I mean, okay, all those people who decided Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, there was no bloody difference. Gee, I bet they're eating their words now. When they look at those phalanxes of blokes making decisions about women's reproductive rights, about the climate, about education, about health care, I mean, no woman in the room at all. This is a disaster for American women. Texas already has the highest maternal mortality rate in the Western world. What a terrible thing to have happened. We And we are now facing a situation where the women who are in housing stress in their old age were made promises. They were told, you go and look after the kids and do that kind of stuff and you can work a bit if you want to, but, you know, we'll take care of the big decisions and don't you worry, we'll look after you. Well, every woman living out of her car in her old age is an absolute finger pointed at those men saying, you didn't look after our interests. You failed us badly and we need to be there 
making sure that that never happens again. The, that that message, Jane, is the most sort of compelling take home from your book, and it, it strikes fear in our hearts as we read it. But you do end on a relatively cautiously optimistic note, I would suggest, and you say, I don't believe half of the human race will ever be as easy to intimidate and control as they once were. Mm. And that gives all of us a, a, a shot in the arm of you know optimism, I guess. Well, I think one of the things that gives me enormous hope is, in fact, the Me Too movement. Because, yes, I know it's not perfect. If you want women to be perfect, I keep saying... Nothing will change. We're not perfect. We will make mistakes. Things Some people will take things too far or not go far enough and all that sort of stuff. That's what happens. But basically, the Me Too movement is wonderful because what it has done, and it's social media that has allowed this to happen, it is, has allowed women to break the silence about the things that have happened to them in their lives. And what that does and what is so powerful about that is when you shatter the silence, you make the world a little safer for the vulnerable and a little less safe for those who would uh, exploit their power. If you keep the silence going, it does the opposite. It makes the, the world safer for predators and less safe for the vulnerable. This is a gift for everyone. I look at my two grandchildren. I've got a grandson and a granddaughter. And whilst I would hate any kind of sexual humiliation, harassment or um, assault to happen to my granddaughter, of course. Um, I look at my grandson and I think, but equally, I would hate to think that he grew up to, to believe that it was okay for him to behave like that. And so by making the world uh, and drawing that very strong boundary about what women will and will not accept, what is reasonable, and also what young men, because Kevin Spacey, of course, was caught up in this as well, um, will accept that is an entirely good thing and it is really calling the powerful to account and holding them to account. And I think that's why we're getting this big pushback against women's rights, LGBTQI rights, people of colour, all that kind of thing. The people who just assumed that they were going to be the boss of everything are realising they can't make that assumption anymore and they're very angry about that. Um, but I don't think they're going to win. It'll be a nasty fight, but I don't think they're going to win. As we always say, Corrie, for all the mistakes the Me Too movement has made, and we analyse them as well, is one millionth of the mistakes that were made before. So exactly. it has to be a good thing. Jane, love your book. We love it. Accidental Feminists. Thank you for writing a book for Caro and me. That's <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> it's, ab it's absolutely our work life and our social life and our lives as uh, baby boomers, or in my case, uh, Caro's a baby boomer and I'm not quite according to Bernard Salt. What, you have to be born in 1960. Correct. And, and so, not 1961. Yes, and I'm, and I'm in, but, I, but I'm not actually a Gen X either, so I'm kind of in the middle. I'm in a no man's oh, land. But I anyway, always, the book still applies to me. I always thought it was the 50s. I thought it was the 50s ending in 1960. <laughs> Accidental Feminists by Jane Caro, 3299, published by our much-loved Melbourne University Publishing. Jane, we want to whiz on to something and involve you here too, Bill Shorten's sure. support of the Medivac bill and the weekend Ipsos poll, which didn't come out all that well for Labor, although we do uh, ask a few questions about the Ipsos poll itself. Mm. However, interesting. Um, that's my segue into asking you whether your own political aspirations, at some stage there was uh, a suggestion you were going to take on Tony Abbott in Warringah. Any truth in the rumour? I certainly considered it, um, but I was considering it out of a sense of duty rather than a sense of, I really want to do this. Do you live in the electorate? No, but I went to school. I grew up in the electorate, went to school there and lived just across the uh, border. But um, I 
to be honest with you, I didn't have fire in the belly for politics. I really like my life outside politics. So when there were other people who put their hand up, I was very happy to say I'm happy to support them and um, you know do what I can if I've got anything to contribute to help them defeat Tony Abbott because they really want to do it. So no, I, I didn't want to do that. I do think uh, we need to be cautious about the Ipsos poll and I think that uh, all that has happened is two doctors are going to decide whether a, a, a an asylum seeker is sick enough to need medical attention um, under under detention conditions. Yeah, exactly, it's not. It's, it's not as not, though they're coming to the hospital, you know, checking in and going and for wandering walks off. No, and exactly, it's not weakening the waters. It is merely, it is merely showing a modicum of humanity towards desperate people. I, I find this whole discussion, I find everything about our treatment of refugees and asylum seekers, bizarrely only the ones who come by boat when the vast majority come by plane anyway, to be a, a real stain on Australia's character. I, I expect we will have to apologise for this. We will have a, you know, in 20 years' time, we'll have a parliamentary thing and the then Prime Minister will get up and say, sorry, we made, we treated these people in this appalling way. Well, that's we keep doing that. I wish we'd stop doing the bloody things that cause us to have to say sorry later in the first place. I think it'll be extraordinary if another election is fought on the basis so of asylum seekers and border protection. It's ex- and it's extraordinary that it, it, someone in government did a very good job in making people think that the Medivac bill was suddenly telling us that our borders were going to be inundated with asylum seekers. I don't really understand the correlation. It's not. Let's let's open up all the um, detention centres. You know my view, Corrie. In the end, I reckon the the banking issues will be far more important to people who vote than... Than the bank situation, than the asylum. I think there are some small L liberal commentators in the last week who have actually come back at the government's trying to claim the space on this one, saying this won't be an election like the Tampa election no. of two thousand. This won't be an election that's fought on border control. There are too many big picture issues. I think climate change is the un. Um, unrated issue. I I don't know if other people feel the kind of existential dread that I feel. Particularly this year, particularly after the summer we've had. Absolutely. And in Warringah, that is the driving, it's a coastal seat, that is the driving thing. And it's really interesting. I went to a um, get-up meeting um, in the seat all about organising to support those who are standing against Tony Abbott. And I would say 65 to 70% of the room were older women and almost all the Get Up volunteers were older women and they were all talking about climate change and they were all talking about their fears for their grandchildren and the kind of world they're going to leave them. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, the current LNP government is so far down the road of climate denial, that climate change denial, that they can't come back from there. And they yep. need a few more women in the room, dare oh, I say, well, Jane. Oh, just my God. On top a, friend of, a friend of the podcast, my mother, Julia, who is a lifelong Liberal voter and who hands out how to vote cards, has worked for the Liberal Party. She is in her early 80s. She is re- so concerned by climate change yep. now. She's petrified yep. about it and, and so concerned for for the future. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I think that's going to be fascinating. Um, now, Caro, on to crush of the week, and I believe you have a crush an oldie but a goodie, dare I say. Well, I mean, we've always had a – well, I've always had a crush on him. Jack Thompson, did you see Australian Story this I week? I did. Did what you see amazing... it, No, I didn't. I've been running around. I yeah. had no idea that he was so unwell. Fascinating episode about the Indigenous group that are helping him with um, basically um, – what do you – dialysis 
for his massive issues with his kidneys. Yeah, ren- renal f- failure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and allowing him to make this wonderful film that has been a, a passion project of his for the last 10 years in the Northern Territory. But there were wonderful interviews in the show with his um, adoptive brother, Peter Thompson, um, people like... Who Six- I still miss as a film reviewer. Oh, I know, on Channel 9 Sunday. Wasn't that a great show? He was such what a, a great thoughtful... Show he was, was one of the first serious film reviewers. He never saw a bad movie, so he obviously didn't go and see um, if Bill Street could talk. Just a tip there, don't go and see it. Anyway, it was a wonderful interview. It was good because they didn't um, focus too much on the salacious sides of Jack's life and, you know, the two partners, et cetera, et cetera, although they did refer to it. Very emotional with both him and Peter Thompson talking about their father and going and standing on the same sort of sacred ground that he had in his work with Indigenous Australians decades ago, um, how Jack came to be adopted by Peter Thompson's family after the death of his mother and then his father, who was a soldier and clearly unable to bring him up. It was a wonderful so episode. Jane, John, Jack is making a film at the moment in the outback, and the only way that he can act and direct this film is if he has dialysis. So they're sending the purple bus to him, which is, you know, in itself has been a wonderful mm. community activity to support someone who's supported Aboriginal people. But he films from 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning through to, I think he said, 6 or 7 o'clock. And then he has five hours on dialysis. He goes into the bus. He's there for five hours hooked up. He gets to bed at 1 a.m. and then he's up again the next morning. And they showed a snippet from this yet unreleased movie. And the acting performance and the power of the man is still there, mm. absolutely still there. And I think, God, you've only had five hours sleep. <laughs> It's a, it was Amazing. a really great episode. And, and introduced by Simon Baker-Denny, who made that wonderful film, Breathe, Breath, last year, and, and who stars in the film, and all about his relationship with the Yothu Yindi singer, Mandawai Yunapingu, and how he became a... Look, it, it's a, it was a wonderful episode. It's a great show. And can I just say, my crush is actually Australian Story, Caro, to broaden the brief a bit of yours. I just love that show it's so much. Show. It is a great show. Yeah. I think I think my favourite Jack film would be uh, Breaker Morant and that performance yeah. where he I think he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Never I didn't mind won, him in the club. I was brilliant as the coach <laughs> in the club. Sunday too far away. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that yeah, in this yeah. Australian. Get on your eye view, Jane. Oh, You'll absolutely love, love it. Now, in BSF this week, Caro, we're not going to do a book because we've just spoken about Jane's wonderful book and so all the potties are going to race out and buy Accidental Feminists. But it's got screen... a pink cover and a wonderful cover design. I love the lion roaring from the housewife with the <laughs> with the broom. So right. <laughs> and the little pumps on her feet. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> or fabulous paws. cover. Oh, no, they're legs. They're they are legs and not paws. Um, On to screen, and you and I are going to have it. Well, did you want to talk about this hideous film you saw, or we've just oh, given well, it short shrift well, now? Me and my two friends, Mike and Trudy, Mike Sheehan, who will probably come on the podcast and talk about it too. We see great. We saw Vice the week before, and I absolutely love that. But this one, we were the only people in the cinema, and there was a good reason. James Baldwin novel. How it has been nominated for an Oscar, I do not know. It is slow as Name treacle. If Beale Street Could Talk. It's a very worthy message and a very sad story, but it takes two more than two hours to tell something that could have been told in 20 minutes, really. And how it got four stars in the Herald What's Sun, I do not Just know. Quickly? 
two young people, two young black people who fall in love in America at a very bad time to be living in New York if you're a black person. Okay. And All right. he goes to jail for something he didn't do. Oh, well, we've just canned that one. Don't go and see it. But how good is Mrs. Wilson? Um, well, ABC Sunday <laughs> nights. Oh, uh, my Lord. So, Jane, you've been on your tour and I you probably have. haven't missed caught everything. Yes. <laughs> well, you have to, uh, you have to eye view this. And to all our messengers out there, if you're not watching ABC Sundays 9.30, do eye view Mrs. Wilson, a British television series, which actually stars and was produced by Ruth Wilson, who interestingly is the granddaughter of the real life character, uh, Alexander Wilson, who uh, was a spy, an English spy. And she has been involved in this story about her uh, grandfather who had several Mrs. Wilsons in his life. He was just, he was like Kim Philby, lie, lie, lie. Wow. No wives knew about the others. And so in this particular um, television series, the Mrs. Wilson, who's the main character, well, some wives did Wilson. know about the others, but the main character, didn't she had know. no idea. Her yes. husband died, so it opens when the husband is having a heart attack. We're in 1962, London, and he's had a, he's writing his novel, and he has a heart attack and dies. And the wife is absolutely forlorn. They met during World War Two. They have two sons. They both worked in the Foreign Office and um, in spy activities. So she kind of gets what his job was during the war. Has no idea what his job was during. Oh. the Oh, dear. <laughs> nor, nor how many Wil- Mrs. Wilsons there were. So I'm up to, or in real time, we're up to episode two. We've just finished episode two and she's piecing together. I don't want to give anything away, but it is brilliant, Caro. It is brilliant, this BBC series. I am mad on it. Yeah, it, it, it's better than The Cry. I think I enjoyed The Cry, but this is better. Mrs. Wilson is three episodes, so there's one to go, Corrie. All I can say is it gets... Uh, it just gets even more shocking in the final episode. Can, can I but, make a recommendation for yes, something? Go ahead. Succession. Oh, yes. We've oh, talked about that before on this podcast, but we haven't seen it. It's absolutely based, Loosely based brilliant. on the Murdoch family. Very loosely, but it's just fascinating in its own right in terms of family relationships, personalities. It's brilliantly produced and written and, um, you know, the, 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 the sets and the... the, the the locations are amazing. So is it Netflix or Foxtel? It's Foxtel. Okay. But Showcase I'm sure, probably. yes, I'm sure it'll turn up on Netflix or, you know, something at some point. But, oh, my God, it's good. Oh, that's a very good tip. We've heard that a few times, actually, Jane. That's one I'm going to I'm, to I'm fascinated by the star of this, Ruth Wilson, who, that's the name of the actress, who plays Mrs. Wilson, a lot of Wilson. She played Jane Eyre, didn't she? Yeah, she yeah, was Jane film. Eyre. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And she was in The Affair, you know, yes. that, um, with... Um, Dominic West, is yes. it? And she's also in Luther. She's the, the bad guy in Luther, the weirdo in she's Luther. She's a fabulous actress. She's a brilliant actress mm. and it, it's wonderful. Don't miss the third episode, Corey. Now, Cara, you have a recipe and hooray, hooray, it's not Yotto Motolenghi simple. <laughs> Jeff Slattery texts me during the week. Oh, no, we actually had a phone conversation and he said, why the bloody hell is Wilson, to speak of another Wilson, <laughs> why is Wilson continuing to go to that cookbook? I'm now going back to my old friend and an old friend of yours, Joe McDougall. It's, everyone's picking their tomatoes at the moment, and if they're not picking them, they're buying them, and they're absolutely beautiful at the greengrocer. This is the easiest recipe you will ever make, Corrie and Jane. Cut your, preferably Roma, tomato in half. Turn your oven on to 120, very low oven, slow-cooked, not roasted, slow-cooked tomatoes. You halve the tomatoes, put them on a baking tray, pour on top of the tomatoes an absolute tinsy amount 
of sweet chilli sauce. You know the commercial stuff mm-hmm. you buy at the supermarket, yep. sweet chilli sauce, just a little bit. It has so much sugar in it. Corrie, there is so little sweet chilli sugar, amount of sweet chilli sauce, just a, a quarter of a teaspoon, if that, on each tomato. Leave them in the oven for an hour and a half. After an hour and a half, you pull them out. What Put temperature again? 120. After an hour and a half, you put on a dollop of either feta or Meredith goat's cheese, whatever feta goat's cheese you have in the fridge. Just, again, a tiny amount and a half a leaf of basil. Put them in for another half an hour, so two hours in total. Take them out. Serve them as a bar snack. Serve them as an accompaniment to your barbecue. If you're doing, you know, Stephanie's slow-cooked lamb or something, it's a perfect accompaniment because the oven's low anyway. It The taste of these tomatoes is absolutely beautiful. Oh, good tip. I did them again on the weekend to much acclaim. Well, there are tomatoes. <laughs> Sounds great. Tomatoes galore around the suburbs of Melbourne and Victoria. Jane, on to what are we grumpy about today? And you're grumpy about something. I am. I'm grumpy about taxis and Ubers and Melbourne traffic. Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm grumpy about Hang it. on. Can we say the same about Sydney? No. no I, I'm, she's on the money. Yeah. Jane's on the money. They don't cancel Ubers on you in Sydney, and no. they do in Melbourne. So, I don't know so why So what was happens. your experience this morning? Well, this morning, I booked a taxi to come here a good half an hour before I was due here, and the Google told me, and I did it at the time, it'd take 13 minutes, so I thought I'd given myself a, a good window. Half an hour later, I'm still sitting on the side of the road waiting for two taxis that uh, didn't turn up, and then finally two Ubers, both of which cancelled. And eventually, um, one of the taxis I'd actually cancelled because I thought I'd got an Uber, um, turned up. Thank you, Mr. Cab Driver. And we got here, but a good, I mean, I was 45 minutes after I'd originally called for transport. And what? It's a 10, 13 minute journey. Absolutely absurd. And the Ubers cancelling twice is just I mean, it's one of the reasons I don't actually use Uber by preference. I use cabs. The other reason is I live in Sydney and cabs can use the uh, transit lane oh, across, across the, the bridge, bridge yes. and Ubers can't. But the other reason is Ubers are too quick to cancel the journey if they don't think it suits them. Well, that's stupid. Yep. Uh, look, you're absolutely right. And There's something crazy. We're sitting here in Melbourne in late February and something was crazy about the traffic this week. There's been all sorts of reports on the radio telling people to calm Girls, down. Girls, you could do what I do. You could just walk. Into- well, I could have, but I had heels on and also I have no clue where I'm going. <laughs> when, when it says, I'm in South Yarra and it says South Bank, it could mean half an hour, an hour, 10 minutes. I have no idea. International people, Europeans come and live in this city and say we are the most horrible, grumpy drivers they've ever encountered. I don't know what it is, but we do. Anyway. Um, six quick questions. So me to you, Caro, speaking of grumpy, what's your latest married at first sight outrage? Well, I, I just want to mention again, um, because I'm actually getting to watch um, Channel 2 on Monday nights at the moment, which will, will end soon. Uh, Media Watch absolutely took them apart about the treatment of some of the people on the show, the way they've been treated behind the scenes, the way they are pressured and almost threatened if they can't cope with the experience and want to leave the show. I think Married at First Sight has a lot to answer for. I think it, it is leading, it is part of this social media nastiness that young women footballers are dealing with at the moment, that young people across the board are dealing with at the moment. This is the perfect embodiment of what has become horrible about our society. So I'm I just couldn't. Say I haven't that. even watched it, but I couldn't agree more. I'm sick of nastiness. I think 2019 should be the year of care. 
humanity, as Jane said earlier. Jane, if you had to name one woman politician that you admired above all others, who would that be? Well, that's an easy, easy one for you, isn't it? <laughs> Penny Wong in Australia, I think. Uh, I really just think Penny Wong is extraordinary. But probably my heart belongs to Hillary Clinton because she was such a trailblazer and she's had such a hard time. And, you know, imagine if she was president of America now. We'd, we'd all be hating on her. We'd all be criticising her uh, totally. But the uh, climate wouldn't be being predated. Uh, you know, they, they wouldn't be banging on about building a wall and having a national emergency and They wouldn't shutdowns. be fearful of abortion rights no. for women. No, that's and imagine right. having Angela, Teresa and Hillary. And Hillary. Mm, I'd feel in good hands. the world would look like if that had happened. So, yeah, um, Penny Wong in Australia, Hillary Clinton. Um, Caro, what, um, what is Operation Castle Dove and can you tell us about this? Please? I love this story. I love this. So a few days ago, uh, the Queen cancelled an appointment. Cancelled an appointment at, I think it was at St Paul's Cathedral. I think that was what it was. And they realised, the powers that be, that there was no plan. No, There had been no plan really put into writing, officially made, for what happens when the monarch dies. So it's called... Well, just because she didn't turn up to an, well, an they all thought, well, well, as it They turns, all thought she died. No, but they thought suddenly she made... Oh, they, they thought she might... Exactly. Good story. They thought she might <laughs> She's be 92. Yeah, I'm I mean, sorry. Have they not thought about this no, before? Will, Even the Queen will die once some well, stage. Now they have thought about it oh. because it gave them a bit of a scare. No wonder Britain's so in Castle, the shit. <laughs> Castle Dove is the code name for the plan that we put put into place. There will be just a, a message put on the doors of Buckingham Palace, a small written message, and there will be 10 days of official mourning. And that will be when you will be able to pay your respects to the monarch and she will be, she'll be, what's it called when you lie interstate? Lie in state. Lie in state, not interstate. We're sending her up to Queensland. (laughs) (laughs) All right, sorry, wrong word. That's my grumpy next week, the overuse of certain words and iconic is one of them. But she is iconic, I mean, for whatever reason. And I just think it's fascinating that it took a cancellation of appointment, which clearly she never does, to make the house, both houses, go into absolute panic mode and create Castle Dove. Perhaps they didn't have an, an agreement with the EU about what they do. <laughs> That's right. After a, Brexit, all the, bets are off. A, a lot of issues there. What's the latest on the Prince Philip saga, Corrie? I, Speaking of our favourite royal. I know you're riveted by this story. This has been going on for a few weeks, Jane, so we're not complete royal watchers here, but this story is quite fascinating. So last week, Cara, the update is that last week Prince Philip... Uh, it was announced that he will not be facing any charges over last month's uh, event where Car his accident. Land, land Rover yes. collided with another vehicle which was carrying two women as well as a nine-month-old baby boy. Um, Prince Philip, of course, is 90, 97 years of age and the Crown Prosecution Service said this week, we have decided it would not be in the public interest to prosecute. What? Why? I mean, does, well, surely it would be in the Corey, public interest to get him off obvious, the road. It's pretty obvious why. Anyway, um, they He's said handed that, in his license. Well, they said that they uh, that they they looked fondly on this that Prince Philip had given up his driver's license, uh, and that um, he, they're also reviewing the, the uh, law that says that there is no actual legal age in Britain to stop driving, but they're now saying that drivers over seventy must renew their licenses every three years. And interestingly, in this story that came out from England, I was. I was amazed to see that all royals except the Queen are able to be prosecuted. So the Queen cannot be prosecuted. 
Is that interesting? She can't cancel appointments apparently without everyone thinking she's dead. So, or sick. I think sick is yeah, probably. <laughs> but that your thought goes straight to funeral I is know. slightly <laughs> indicative, I isn't know. it? I know. Well, when you're 92, I guess that's part of part of life. Um, anyway, so I hope that's the last that we hear of the Prince Philip driving saga. Jane, my question to you is: uh, going looking at the Melbourne University publishing saga of the last couple of weeks, should the federal government take over the publisher? Or what should happen to MUP and how sad are you? Well, I'm very sad um, and I, you know, I'm particularly uh, distressed for the people who work there and who are absolutely fantastic. But um, I I don't think the federal government should take it over. Uh, but I do hope uh, that Louise Adler... Uh, pops up somewhere else in publishing because she's a phenomenon and she has such a good um, understanding of the times and what's right for the times because I think the thing about this book is that it has hit at just the right time and that was Louise that picked that. And so that talent, that skill is a real contribution to Australian intellectual life and political life and we don't want to lose it. So I am very sure that Louise will... Uh, emerge doing something similar somewhere else and um, that's exactly what should happen and stupid Melbourne University frankly can disappear up its own orifice. Have you ever met anyone? Take, have you, have you ever, ever met a publisher more persuasive than Louise Hedler? No, <laughs> she's, been, she's been trying to get Cara's memoir for years, apparently. <laughs> she's a she's a very, very good persuader. She is. She's yep. fantastic I, I, and a really great woman and, um, you know, lively, funny, warm, you know, it shouldn't have happened to her. It's been wonderful sitting here talking about the product of her persuasiveness. So yeah. thank you for coming in. Corrie, you're going to close with a GLT. I am, Caro. So if you are renovating or building a new house, or if, like me, you have withdrawals between episode series of Kevin McLeod's Grand Designs, join me on uh, dwell.com. You can sign up for the daily blog posts and they'll post something each day. Dwell is an interior interiors magazine, an architecture magazine, but it has really successfully jettisoned into the digital world. And so every day into my inbox come these extraordinary, all incredibly tasteful and incredibly innovative designs of houses and cabins all around the world. So dwell.com, that would be my good local tip if you love architecture and all of that sort of stuff. Jane and Caro, or Jane Caro and Caro Wilson, it has been amazing. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure to have you here to, today, Jane, and we wish you all the best with Accidental Feminists. It is Thank a you. real, it is a game changer of a book, and uh, not just for people of our generation, but um, young people also should be taking note. And men, Read and it. men, I'm sorry, and men of men of all people should be. Let's send Scott Morrison a copy okay. right now. I'm sure he'll pour over it. <laughs> <laughs> Potties, if you're looking for a signed copy of this book, we have a limited supply at the bookshop. Jane Caro has very kindly signed some copies. So just come to my bookshop. And there are also links in the show notes to my bookshop. Thank you, Miss Jane, our producer, for all your great work as usual. And to all our potties out there, please tell your family and friends to subscribe to our podcast. We would love you to rate us. You just have to press the five stars if you think we're worth it. We certainly do. Um, and please send any feedback or comments or tips or anything that you have to Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram. The account is called don't shoot pod and we tweet so you can join us at, at don't shoot pod as well and you can email us at feedback don't shoot pod.com.au thank you jane thank you Kara. and what do we say Kara? don't shoot the messenger ladies
Hi, this is Leanne Moriarty. Hi, I'm Anne Summers. I'm Jen Harper. Hello, this is Laura Tingle. Hi, I'm Marcus Suzak. I'm David Maher. Join me on The Book Pod. I hope you can join Corey Perkin and I on The Book Pod. And I think also people often completely underestimate if something is easy to read, they think that means it's easy to write and it's absolutely not. It's such a skill. Always, no matter how abstract the issue, you have to find the narrative and you have to find characters and around those you build the story. You know, some authors take a decade to write a book. I would miss the meeting the readers. Subscribe to The Book Pod. Subscribe to The Book Pod in your favourite podcast app. Wherever you listen to podcasts.